Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed. On July 23rd, just a week ago, the WHO activated its highest alert level because of the escalating outbreak of monkeypox around the world, declaring the virus a public health emergency of international concern. And just this week, the organization warned that the window is closing on containing the outbreak of this virus. Should we be worried? Are case counts rising here in Canada as quickly as they are around the globe? Dr. Anthony LaDelfa has been keeping a close eye on the spread of monkeypox here at home. He is infection control lead at Oak Valley Health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. LaDelfa. First question, the significance of the WHO's monkeypox global health emergency declaration last weekend. What does this mean to the efforts to contain monkeypox? Yeah, so it's essentially the message being sent is that the coordinated effort is now required all over the world in order to uh, gather everyone's knowledge, expertise, uh, management to try to contain the cases now. There was some deliberation over the past few weeks where the amount of spread, the number of countries didn't justify the declaration. And I think just the, the, the amount of growth we've seen in case numbers and the countries it spread to has, I think, created this declaration now where it's needed to put all everyone's heads together to try and prevent more spread from it getting more sort of out of control and making sure that testing is done accurately appropriately we have a good reporting system so that numbers are accurate so all these things can now come together nicely because of this declaration and that was just the, the crucial next step to do. There was a warning from the WHO several weeks ago that this could spread to the general population. What are you seeing and why was monkeypox initially targeting most the, an area, the gay and bisexual men community? Yeah, it, a lot of it has to do with the mode of transmission. Um, I think it's very clear uh, and it's very important to clarify that this is not a sexually transmitted infection. Um, but unfortunately, there has been a, a bit of a stigma placed on that, that assumption. The transmission has to do with close contact with individuals, specifically with the lesions that they have. Um, the lesions can really be anywhere on the body, but it takes direct contact with those lesions. Now, it just so happened that it was targeting this particular community and the spread is happening among specifically the men who have sex with men community. However, it could spread in other populations. As we know, this virus is endemic in parts of Africa where it does spread among children, women, men of all ages, and there's nothing stopping it really from spreading. It's just right now it is mostly contained within certain environments and certain, uh, certain places. But one of the reasons for all these measures is that there realistically is nothing stopping it from spreading in the general population. Uh, it just it hasn't gone widespread like that just yet. However, I think the, the importance of the education and messaging is that it could do that, and it's not just confined to a particular population. Dr. LaDelfa, just this past Wednesday, July 27th, there were two pronouncements made by the WHO. The first is that the window is closing when it comes to trying to contain the outbreak of this virus, of monkeypox. The WHO chief 
advising on the very same day that people should reduce their sex partners in order to avoid monkeypox. That's pretty, pretty profound stuff. Yeah, and part of it, it's hard to have specific prevention measures in place, but again, because direct contact with lesions and close contact with respiratory secretions often means that sexual encounters do lead to transmission, not necessarily the sexual intercourse itself, but just the amount of time in close contact with the lesions. That's one of the more important pieces of prevention, given that, you know, let's say over 90 to 95% of cases right now uh, are in gay and bisexual men right now. That is one measure that early on will hopefully curb some of the cases. But again, I the concern is that the implication mm. or the assumption from that is that it is a sexually transmitted infection, which again, it's, it is, it's not necessarily the case. It's more just the, the circumstances of where this close contact with the lesions on the skin may occur. In my research, uh, I saw that transmission uh, can happen in other ways, not just sexually, as you've mentioned, non-sexual physical contact, handling clothing or bedding used by infected persons, even respiratory droplets. Is is that the case? Can it now be spread through droplets? That's uh, That's been a hypothetical concern for quite a while now. The other countries, so the UK in particular, they've done quite a bit of contact tracing and based on the modes of transmission and the patterns that they're seeing, the extent of actual true respiratory spread seems to be much less and if it happens, it again boils down to prolonged close contact with respiratory secretions as opposed to something like COVID-19 where um, it has much more of an aerosol component where we know people can transmit over somewhat longer distances. This is behaving much more like a close contact uh, transmission virus where there has to be either direct contact with the lesions or in very close contact, uh, the respiratory secretions can lead to transmission. So it's it again doesn't seem to be at this point behaving like other respiratory viruses, which can travel longer distances to cause transmission. And again, the focus right now is on that sort of contact with contaminated surfaces, with lesions, um, and then the more close contact respiratory secretion. So that's that's the bit of a difference between the other respiratory viruses and this one. Dr. Ladelfa, why would the WHO say that the window is closing when it comes to containing monkeypox? What is meant by that? I think it boils down a lot to how well we can actually uh, contact trace, how much we can actually identify who is high risk of a contact uh, when it comes to things like prevention through vaccination and you know reducing close contacts. Um, once we start to see that it is um, expanding uh, well past uh, just the population of gay and bisexual men, that's where it's going to become a lot more difficult to put any kind of control measures in place. I try to identify where the cases are coming from or how to prevent them. It's partly a numbers issue where if the numbers just get too high, the, the detail and amount of contact tracing will get too much. But also right now there's actually quite a strict isolation requirement of 21 days. And so the more and more people who have to stay at home for 21 days in isolation uh, will have quite significant, not only social implications, but financial implications. And, and without real support uh, for those people who have to isolate for 21 days, it's going to become a, 
an issue of feasibility and practicality as well. So this is where now that the numbers, they're expanding, but they, they're not quite yet at you know, critical mass where it's impossible to contact trace. We have that, that narrow window right now where we can tr try to see if it can be more of a, a slow transmitting virus rather than an explosion of cases, which can just make control measures quite impossible to, uh, to put in place. And how important are vaccinations at this point? And I understand that the smallpox vaccine is being used in particular. The EU approved just recently the use of the smallpox vaccine against monkeypox. But I also understand, for instance, that Toronto has opened up vaccination clinics using Imvimune. It's a vaccine recently approved in Canada for the protection against monkeypox. Can you help me understand the importance or the the role of vaccinations in monkeypox? Monkeypox as a virus is is somewhat related to smallpox, which was eradicated decades ago. They belong to the same family called orthopox viruses, and so the vaccines that we have readily available now are actually smallpox vaccines that we know has uh, similarity to monkeypox and we know that the uh, effectiveness is somewhere in the realm of 85-ish percent. So because that's available right now, there isn't a dedicated monkeypox vaccine that's been licensed and available. The one that we have here, the Invimmune, as you mentioned, is a third generation smallpox vaccine. It's used both as general prevention uh, if somebody is identified as high risk to come into contact with somebody who may be positive or for something that we call post-exposure prophylaxis or, or prevention, once you've actually been exposed to somebody who you realize in hindsight was positive or highly suspicious to be positive. And so the vaccine has roles in both of those situations. And that's what's more readily available um, through public health units uh, to make sure that if you do get exposed or you're very high risk of being exposed to monkeypox, vaccine will be available. Um, the other potential therapeutic would be treatments. Um, there is an antiviral treatment that's uh, being used in very specific cases. Um, those who are immunocompromised, like those who uh, have HIV um, and other situations where they may be at higher risk of developing more severe infection, there is an antiviral treatment that may be available in very specific cases. Uh, but the vast majority of people wouldn't require an antiviral treatment. What is your advice to people who are listening right now who may have been exposed to monkeypox or may have monkeypox as we speak and are hesitant, reluctant to seek treatment because they've heard of horror stories where patients have been turned away and, and made to feel ostracized? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we have heard of that occurring for a number of reasons. Uh, it can relate to just the unfamiliarity or the, the lack of uh, knowledge, uh, the lack of education about this virus among many of the healthcare practitioners because this isn't you know, a common infection that was taught in their training. There's a lack of familiarity with how infectious it is, the personal risk to themselves should, that, should a person come into their clinic, uh, what testing can be done, etc. So definitely try and seek out as much information as possible. It is important that if you were exposed, the sooner that you identify and seek out treatment in the form of prevention with a vaccine, the better at reducing your risk of getting it or getting a more severe course with it. As much as they can identify, if they're able to know in their kind of social networks or among their practitioners, 
if they know of specific clinics. Um, I know in general, a sexual health clinic may have more experience now recently with it um, or may be able to refer appropriately, but uh, avoidance of seeking medical attention or asking questions is part of the issue why there's likely more and more spread because people will brush off their initial symptoms under the rug. The initial symptoms may seem like a COVID-19 infection and so they may just assume that they need to isolate for X number of days and then they can go back out and they may not even notice some of the lesions which means they're very contagious and part of that has to do with the general lack of familiarity that, that we're seeing right now. So certainly try to seek out as much information as possible, early identification and as much reduction of high-risk behaviors at this point in time would be important to try and limit the amount of spread uh, in order to know if you need to isolate, if there's a role for vaccination for you as well. Uh, this is where, as you talked about, that, that window may be closing if we're not able to identify people appropriately. Um, at the hospitals, there's been you know, ample education and protocols where you know, we have methods in place. If we do identify someone as a suspect case, there is now familiarity with what kind of samples to send, um, the isolation that's required, linking them with public health. So that's available at many of the hospital sites. Uh, so that might be one additional option if they're concerned that their primary care provider may not be familiar uh, as well. And then just with their public health units, uh, there's a lot of focus now on monkeypox to make sure that people are protecting themselves appropriately and uh, seeking uh, appropriate preventative treatments as well. Dr. Anthony Ladelfa, Infection Control Lead at Oak Valley Health, thank you so much for helping us try to understand monkeypox just a little better. Thanks for having me. So... What's it actually like to have monkeypox? We speak exclusively now with one young man about his physical and emotional journey with the virus. Welcome to the feed. Really glad that you've decided to do this. And and may I ask why you agreed to the interview and also why you wish to remain anonymous? Well, a lot of people don't truly understand the symptoms and how monkeypox really progresses. So there's a lot of stigma that comes with monkeypox. Kind of the reason why didn't want to list my name. I've read a lot of horror stories, seen a lot of TikToks on the basis of, you know, people being ostracized, feeling like they were disconnected from the community because of their diagnosis. And maybe feeling like they've done something wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's kind of the same feeling as you would have with someone who had HIV, I guess. Yeah. The same kind of stigma. So let's go back in time. Do you know how you got the virus. How did you catch monkeypox? I believe I caught it from someone I slept with, but I'm not entirely sure. So what made you decide that you needed to be tested? What, what, what were the signs and symptoms in the early stages? Actually, I wasn't able to get tested. Everywhere I went, so I went to a walk-in clinic, called the hospital, and I called telehealth, uh, and they all said, it's best for me to stay at home, kind of refuse to do a test. So I, I never actually got tested, but I spoke with someone uh, from telehealth and I had all of the symptoms, for example, like fever, headache, muscle ache, the rash that I got matched exactly what I had found online on uh, an English study that included photos. I had really 
really bad chills, a sore throat. Uh, there were sores all over my mouth that so was kind of hard to breathe or swallow. How did it make you feel to be turned away by the medical profession? Honestly, it felt really isolating, and it felt like I had done something wrong. What did you do when you, in your mind, confirmed by doing your research that you had monkeypox? What, what was your next step? Um, I had called telehealth, uh, and I had described my symptoms to the nurse, and she basically confirmed that it was consistent with symptoms that she had heard of and that she had spoken with, people that had had it. It honestly felt odd. With COVID, you have to get tested. You have to have proof of it if you're going <laughs> to work or you're not going to work. But with, with this, it just seems like it was very disorganized, I guess. Did you tell friends and family? I did, yeah. I actually had to self-isolate at home because monkeypox can be spread through, you know, even touching fabrics, linen, towels. I had to be really careful about that. I was pretty terrified of giving it to my family. And, and I also felt like kind of ashamed of it, so I didn't really tell them until a couple of days later. But mind you, I was stuck in my room the entire time. I didn't leave the house, but I had a really bad flu, like flu symptoms for a little over a week. I wouldn't have left my room otherwise, but uh, they were really understanding. Even when you told them it was monkeypox, were they understanding? They were, yeah. You know, I would use kind of like humor to deflect from like the horribleness of the situation, but they all they did the same, so it was pretty it was pretty nice. What did you do to treat yourself? I mean, it sounds like you were really in charge of all of this because no one was there to help you. Uh, how did you handle the, all of the side effects of monkeypox and all of the symptoms? And, and you must have felt quite physically terrible for that time in isolation. I took a lot of Benelin. I took the day and night pill. It was extremely helpful. It was the only thing that kind of helped. But most of the time, I was just kind of struggling in my bed. That kind of helped, so I was really grateful for that. There are several hundred active cases of monkeypox right now in Ontario. Would yours have been included in this number? I mean, was it registered with any public health organization that you had monkeypox? Um, that's actually a question that I was asking myself. I had called uh, Toronto Public Health, but again, they kind of gave me the runaround and sent me over to telehealth. And they said I should not go anywhere. I shouldn't go to the hospital. Mm. And when I called Bennybrook or uh, other hospitals in the city, they all told me to stay home. Even when my symptoms were really bad, it was just very isolating. And it felt like no one really knew what to do. Did it feel like nobody cared? It did, yeah. It seemed like there was a lack of organization and a lack of care for like the people who were sick and like truly experiencing really awful symptoms that at that time seemed quite life-threatening. Like My throat was almost closing up because I had sores on my tongue and all over my gums. Uh, even telehealth was like, typically we would tell you to go to the hospital, but uh, considering this, like it seems like it get, it's getting a bit better because when I called, I was getting through the worst of it. So I was told basically if it got worse, then to go to a hospital. But it didn't feel good. 
Does it leave you scratching your head why there is so much attention when it comes to COVID, for instance, and there seems to be an acceptance at this point uh, when it comes to that virus, and, and everybody's all aboard when it comes to vaccinations and treatment and isolation, but, you know, we're there for you, and there's nothing like that in your experience with monkeypox. There's definitely a disconnect. You know, in the early days of COVID, we also saw this kind of behavior among, like, healthcare professionals and like people who were dealing with COVID patients. There was not like organization in terms of testing, contact tracing, even like with this, there was no, absolutely no contact tracing. It, it seemed like it was the early stages of COVID and that no one was taking it very seriously or even really knew what it was. Even when I called Sunnybrook, I had to be connected to another person who actually knew what monkeypox was. <laughs> wow. Recently, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global health emergency. Do you think now attitudes will change? It really depends. I don't think it's necessarily the attitudes of, of people that need to, that, that needs to change. I think a lot of people are pretty uh, understanding that, you know, things happen. But I think if anything needs to change, it's mostly just the attitudes amongst healthcare workers and the knowledge of the illness and the symptoms and know how to treat it or how to not turn away people from the, yeah. from, from the hospital. Monkeypox, at least up to this point, seems to be targeting mostly members of the gay and bisexual community, men in particular. Do you think that it had something to do with the health system's reluctance to deal with you? I think there's definitely a disconnect in terms of contact tracing. It's not the same as it would be with COVID. You know, we had all of these initiatives. We had that app, COVID Alert. You don't really necessarily have anything that comes to mind in terms of contact tracing. At least I didn't experience that, even though I reported it to of Public Health. I reported it to telehealth and Sunnybrook. I was never really given the opportunity to provide any information about my partner. It was not a, a very organized or good system. A lot of people are being exposed without knowing. Yeah. And no one's really trying to track them down, tell them they have to self-isolate. So that's kind of a situation that reminds me of COVID in its early days. How are you feeling today and when and how will you know that it's okay to get back into life as you know it? Uh, I feel good right now. Just a little tired. You know, exhaustion is one of the symptoms that usually lasts for a while. Similar to COVID, if you have long COVID, I guess. What advice have you to anyone listening right now who may have been exposed to monkeypox or may indeed be dealing with it right now? My advice is basically to know, for them to understand that, you know, you're not alone. There are a lot of people who have it right now. Uh, even while I had monkeypox, I was looking at TikTok of people who were explaining the symptoms. There was one person I was talking to who was very open about it. He was doing a lot of interviews on UK uh, television, and he was trying to basically get the word out that, you know, it's not the end of the world. There are very few cases of people passing away, but I think the thing that I would suggest to anyone dealing with it is just to like take time to realize that this isn't really your fault, and that you'll get through this. It'll take a bit of time, but I think the worst part is just isolation. Yeah. I want to thank you for sharing your 
intimate details about your monkeypox journey. Very, very difficult, challenging journey. I would normally say the highs and lows, but it's in this case, it's been the lows and the lows. But you are moving forward and you are an incredibly courageous young man. And thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come on the feed, scorching temperatures and wildfires. Is this now a climate crisis? Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. You either saw it on the news or you were actually in it yourself. Scorching hot temperatures right across Canada, the U.S., throughout Europe, and in places like the U.K. that don't have the infrastructure to deal with 40-plus degrees Celsius for days on end. People suffered. Wildlife suffered. Grass and trees grew parched and wildfires erupted around the globe. What on earth is happening? I repeat, what on earth is happening? A member of the David Suzuki Foundation, Julius Lindsay, joins us now on the feed. Julius is the Foundation's Director of Sustainable Communities. Welcome to the show, Julius. Really glad to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, tell me about Sustainable Communities. What is that? And you are the Director of it for the David Suzuki Foundation. What is a sustainable community? Yeah, so my team really looks at climate action in cities, and we focus primarily in five cities across the country. And what we're really doing is we are trying to boost the ambition and the action of climate change in those cities, working with citizens, working with citizen groups, working with city staff and city uh, councillors to boost that ambition and to push for more uh, climate action in those cities. How has the reaction been to what we have seen over the past couple of weeks? Record-breaking heat and increase in wildfires across the globe. How have people responded to this? This is something that some of us have never seen before. Well, I think there are people who have been working on this issue for a long time who are not incredibly surprised. Um, I think some of the challenges that we've been seeing across the, the world this year, we've, been, we've seen in other places like out west, um, in Canada and, and uh, you know, in places like California and even actually last summer in Ontario, we had um, some wildfires up north. And so these things have been happening. I think it's just this year there's been, it's been happening in places where um, they don't typically happen or it's a bit of a surprise. And so um, people are paying attention and people are starting to like really think about it and talk about it. These recent events, the heat, record-breaking heat and, and the eruption of more wildfires, what combined is all of this telling us? Well, I think it's telling us, and it's, it's sort of the predictions from a, from a climate perspective coming true. Some of these uh, things are predicted to happen more frequently in the future, and we are seeing them now. And so I think some of these, uh, some of these effects that we're having on the climate and, and some of the sort of human effects that we're having in our in our societies and our cities are, are 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 driving some of these effects and we're when we're seeing them happen and and I think it, as we go into the future we're going to increasingly see them happen. Julius, in your opinion, are we approaching or are we already in a climate crisis? I think the answer to that question is we are approaching and we are in because I think the time to address uh, the 
catastrophic changes that we might see if we reach certain levels of warming in our atmosphere um, is quite short. And so those those levels have not been reached yet, but, you know, our, our time to take action is becoming shorter and shorter, and the changes that we need um, are are sweeping. And so... Um, you know, we are we are in a crisis of action. We need to take action. If you look at the IPCC reports that were released earlier this year, um, it's clear that we need to take action. We need to take sweeping action, and we need to take it um, quite quickly and 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 near in the future. You know, scientists and other planet keepers are echoing exactly what you've just said. They're saying that something must be done now. So, what exactly needs to be done now? And let me ask you this. A little bit or a lot? You talk about sweeping changes, but will even just a little bit of change make a difference? Well, I think everybody making a little change adds up to a big change. And so I think that, um, you know, we should all find the small things that we can do to make changes. Um, you know, there are parts of our society and things in our society that we um, we need to change. We need to stop using fossil fuels and burning fossil fuels um, you know, we need to uh, use more active modes of transportation. Um, you know, we need to change the way we heat and build our homes. And, you know, we need to also start adapting to the changes that we're seeing and that we will uh, continue to see into the future because there will be a, uh, a cost and a human cost. Even if we were to turn off all of the greenhouse gas emissions today, there still are changes that have happened and, and will happen um, and so we need to prepare for that as well. And so there are sort of larger societal changes that as, as a society that we need to make, but I think as well there are small changes that we all can make and do in our lives that will um, help address the issue as well. Why do you think that it takes scorching hot weather and raging wildfires to make non-experts like me finally sit up and take notice? I'm scared. Well, I think that part of it is just the reality of, of it. It's 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 easy to ignore something if it doesn't affect you, and, and it's easy to ignore it as well if it's if it's a something that isn't super concrete or isn't affecting on the day to day. And so, often in the work that I've done in my career and and the work that we're doing at the foundation is bringing that down to be very real for people. There are you know there are wildfires that are happening across the globe right now. There's record temperatures in places like Europe, but you know. In BC, we had a heat dome last year, and and you know in, in Toronto we've had some major floods, and so um, you know part of that is people understanding how is this going to affect you on a day to day basis, how is this going to affect where you live, how you live, you know what that is, and and these are concrete examples that people can grab onto and say like this is the what the experience will be like, and that makes it more real for people and makes people understand like what the challenge is and, and how this will actually affect them. Um, because some of these changes we've never faced before in the past. And so um, this is like the, the, the concreteness and the reality will hit home for people as opposed to the, the message and the theoretical, the theoretical changes that might happen. Yeah. And, you know, what you've just talked about, though, to me seems like reaction. What about action based on, on the things that are happening right now? Well, as I said, I think, you know, there's small things that we can all do um, in our in our lives to take action to address climate change. You know, eat less meat is one that I always say, um, you know, you can reduce the amount of energy use in your household or, if you know, if you have the means, you can make renovations to make your household more energy efficient. You know, you can find ways to not use, use a gas-powered car or buy an electric vehicle. Um, you know, these are all actions that, like, we can take action to... 
make changes, but also, you know, take action in, in terms of pushing organizations, companies, governments that you interact with to make changes to be more sustainable and to and to make the changes that are needed to really address the, the climate crisis. Because I think, you know, we all have a role to play in governments, individuals, companies, etc. Um, you know, we all need to do what, what needs to be done to address the crisis. Boy, if, if this isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is. The, what we've been seeing around the world in the past couple of weeks. Let me ask you this before we say goodbye. What do you think this planet will look like in 20, maybe 30 years if we do nothing? Well, as I said, I think what we've seen um, happening in, around the world is, you know, when you look at the best science, these are the things that are predicted to happen more frequently. Um, when you look at the IPCC reports and you look at some of the predictions that are happening um, from the science. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that, uh, you know, people will be able to make the changes and we will be addressing the crisis. And that's the work that we do at the foundation. It's really about um, pushing towards that, that hopeful future of, um, you know, uh, a low-carbon resilient society where we can address this crisis. We can reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that we make and um, have a prosperous future. Julius Lindsay, representing the David Suzuki Foundation, thank you very much for your time now on the feed. Thanks for having me. Next, how the death of her four-year-old daughter sent one mother on a mission to create Kira's Law. Leanne Castellino from Where Parents Talk with that story. Our guest today is a palliative care physician, a mother, and an advocate for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Dr. Jennifer Kagan Viatter lost her daughter Kira in 2020 at the age of four in an apparent murder-suicide involving Kira's father. The family believes Kira's death was preventable, that she would be alive today had judges and the family court system recognized that domestic violence can impact parenting. Dr. Kagan Viatter joins us today along with her husband, Philip, a family law lawyer. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's been just over two years since Kira's passing. How are you and your family doing? You know what, Lena, it, it has been very difficult. You know, I think what some people may not realize is that for others watching our story, two years have gone by, but for us, it feels like Kira was killed just yesterday. And if anything, the grief gets worse. You know, we, we miss our daughter terribly. And we still have to deal with these very same institutions that failed Kira so miserably. And it should be mentioned that you and your family have been so open with sharing this, this incredible tragedy. But I wonder, what gives you hope that the devastating loss of your young daughter and stepdaughter will not be in vain? So the fact that there is a lot of strong public outcry as to the failures of the system for Kira, and really that there's unanimous agreement that the system is so broken and needs to change. Ultimately, if we can get some meaningful changes implemented, along with a significant culture shift in terms of taking domestic violence seriously, then we're hoping we can really help other victims of violence and children who are in situations that similar to what I was in and what Kira was in. Let's unpack that a little bit more. What are some of the key red flags that you believe the court and others missed along the way that could have changed the ending of this story for you and your family? So I could step in a little bit here just because I'm also a family law lawyer uh, for people who may not know. And, you know, in my view, a lot of the problems were that 
the court and especially the Child Protection Agency involved with us, Jewish Family Child Services, weren't taking the coercive control and non-physical abuse seriously enough. And even when we were continuing to say, you know, her ex-husband is, is escalating and escalating and escalating and things are getting a lot more serious, um, it, was, it was minimized. It was explained away, um, ignored. Um, and the other problem was that whenever there would be a, a not a threat, but whenever the court would would admonish uh, her ex and say, "Look, if you continue to act this way, we're going to take access away from you," they just wouldn't act on it. And so I think he knew at a fairly early stage that he can do what he wants, and this current court culture of pro contact at almost all costs was going to save him. Um, so it, it just continued, and uh, until the very end, unfortunately. Along those lines, then, when you look at it, why do you believe that these red flags that you just talked about were missed or overlooked? For one, I think the court deferred a lot to, for example, Jewish Family and Child Services instead of being that final gatekeeper that they're tasked uh, with being. Uh, with with being, and you know, when you look at you know what are these child protection agencies? In our case, we started off with two extremely junior workers. Workers. Uh, I don't think they had much experience with domestic violence. I don't even think they had much, if any, training at all about domestic violence. And when I would speak to those workers uh, myself and even put stuff in writing, they didn't seem to get it at all. And the courts are then relying on their investigation. And quite frankly, I felt, I felt that they weren't qualified to do the work that they were tasked of doing. They had one task, which was to save Kira and protect her. And that's the one task that they refused to do. Now, one of the key considerations for the courts is that the trial judge said that the domestic violence against you was not relevant to parenting, and he would not let you testify about all the details of the abuse. What is your response to that sort of rationale? So this is completely wrong, and it really shows why judges need education, not only in domestic violence and risk of lethality, but also really how to act in these types of cases. What we know about domestic violence is that when a woman is at risk, so are the children. And really, safety needs to be at the forefront. So it's just, it's completely wrong. Um, I, I can't say it more eloquently than that, I don't think. Well, I'll just jump in there because I'll tell you that the Supreme Court of Canada actually just confirmed that um, as well um, in, in, in one of their uh, recent decisions that just came out in May. Uh, it's Baron Drecht and Glubli, Glub Leonis, I apologize, I can't pronounce it, but the Supreme Court actually has now finally confirmed for all judges judges in the entire country that that is an untenable uh, comment to make, that you could be an abusive, parent, uh, an abusive spouse, but a good parent. You consider that a victory? Look, our, our child is, is gone, um, and I'm hoping that Part of why they finally recognized this publicly two years later um, may have been in part uh, premised on her legacy. Um, so it's a victory in that sense. So to, to hopefully protect other, other victims and children. Let's talk about Bill C-233 called Cura's Law. It's an act that would amend both the Criminal Code and the Judges Act. Can you tell us how did it come to be, its current status, and its potential impact if it is indeed passed into law? 
Absolutely, and thank you for asking about Kira's Law Bill C-233, which is a private member's bill that was tabled by MP Andrew Dillon in February of this year. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about what it does um, to answer your question. So there's two parts to Bill C-233. The part that amends the criminal code basically um, provides that judges consider ankle monitoring devices in cases where someone is accused of committing a violent offence against an intimate partner. And the Kira's Law piece, which is the other part of it, um, it amends the, the Judges Act to provide for education for federally appointed judges on domestic violence and coercive control. Currently, there's no mandatory training on domestic violence and its impacts on parenting. And when we reviewed the Canadian Judicial Council uh, trainings that their website where they train judges in the last seven years, they have only offered one course on domestic violence and it was offered for the Atlantic provinces only. And that's in seven years. And, you know, this bill, if passed, I mean, um, I'll tell you the stage in a moment, but if passed in the Senate, it will, uh, you know, be one step further towards saving lives of victims uh, and children in situations of domestic violence. You know, it's critically important that judges receive education and training on domestic violence, coercive control, risk of lethality, and how to act and make decisions in these cases that put uh, the safety at the forefront. You know, it came about due to the wonderful efforts of MPs Andrew Dillon, who tabled this bill, you know, MP Pam Dimoff, MP R.R. Sachs, and really politicians across party lines who voted in favour. Um, we were really grateful to the MPs that were involved in this. And, you know, the bill passed unanimously in the House of Commons in June of 2022, which was just four months after it was originally tabled. So it moved through very, very quickly. Um, it's now going to go to the Senate in the fall. And, you know, we're hopeful that it will be enacted into law um, soon thereafter if all goes well. Dr. Kagan, you endured abuse during your marriage to your ex-husband, Kira's father. Can you take us through some of the examples of the coercive control that he exerted on you? If I may just explain a little bit about what coercive control is, I think it may be helpful to set the context. Mm -hmm. You know, coercive control is a really dangerous type of behavior. It involves a pattern of behavior which, you know, is harm involving threats, intimidation tactics, humiliation or other abuse to really harm or punish a victim. And it's about power and control. It's about the perpetrator saying a message, sending a message, I'm in control and if you disobey, there are going to be consequences. In terms of what I experienced, I mean, I can definitely give you a few examples. During the marriage, you know, threats that he will never let me divorce him, saying things that I'm his property and he can do whatever he wants to me. I actually had a tracking device placed on my car unbeknownst to me um, at the time. I found out about it after separation, demanding to know the passwords to all my devices and my whereabouts at all times. And these are just a few examples only to give you a sense of that type of behavior. Post-separation, really what it looked like was using Kira as a tool to harm me. So things like abducting Kira against a court order, you know, obstructing court order telephone calls. If there was something that he didn't like, let's say he got a letter from the lawyer or whatnot, he would retaliate. Um, things like, you know, breaking a cherished possession to send me a message. One of, you know, Kira's possessions from my house would come home broken. And on one occasion, actually, a, a piece of her hair was even cut off in retaliation. So it's, it's these cumulative, it's the pattern of all of these acts that's sending me a message that he's in control and if I don't obey him, that there's going to be a punishment and a consequence to me. And it's, it's terrifying um, to be, 
the victim and trying to extricate yourself from somebody who is so obsessive and coercively controlling like that, it, it truly becomes a nightmare for any victim to be entrapped with somebody like that who is so dangerous. Thank you for sharing those examples because there are going to be people who listen to this interview who may experience similar things happening to them and may not, um, you know, see that as something potentially ultimately very dangerous for themselves or their families. So, so thank you for that. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? I would encourage um, victims of violence to reach out to the local shelter, connect with a worker there and, you know, try to seek help that way. Um, even in light of everything we've talked about today, um, you know, it, it's still important to ensure your safety. And we're, we're hoping that with, um, with changes and, and advocacy that the culture of the courts will shift favorably. And I could just add as well that in January of this year, the Department of Justice Canada put out um, this thing. It's called a help toolkit, identifying and responding to family violence for family law legal advisors. And even though the uh, target um, of this was people such as social workers and, and lawyers, uh, I would uh, suggest and recommend that victims review this help toolkit, at least as a starting point, ensure that their advisors are familiar with it and understand it and can argue it. Um, and then hopefully that can help save some lives as well. Dr. Jennifer Kagan Viatter, Philip Viatter, thank you both for sharing your story with us today. Thanks thank you very having. much for having us. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. If you're behind the wheel this holiday weekend, please listen up. Kevin Frankish and the CAA are next with the dangers of drowsy driving. Teresa DeFillis from CAA joining me right now for another one of our chats about, well, your favorite uh, topic, Teresa, and mine, and that is driving. Correct. Good to see you, Kevin. <laughs> nice to see you. And today we're going to be talking about something that I bet a lot of people don't even think there's anything wrong with. And that is sleepy drivers. Absolutely. This is a bigger issue than people think. And it's a really difficult one to tackle because, you know, again, there's not an impairment per se. It's just someone didn't get enough sleep. It can be, you know, different from day to day or drive to drive. Uh, and yet the consequences are pretty significant. And it, it, the fact is, it is socially acceptable to be dead tired and drive. It's not socially acceptable to drink and drive. If I said to you, oh man, I had about six beer and I got behind the wheel, you would look at me and you'd wag your finger and say, how dare you? But if I said, oh, I didn't get any sleep last night. I was so tired. I was nodding off. I don't remember the last 20 kilometers. You would just say, oh yeah, I've been there. Well, so somebody, somebody will match it with a story, correct? Yeah, right? Yeah. Like they've, they've had their own story. And we think nothing of the fact, oh, you got to be careful or... Uh, you know, you shouldn't do that. No, it's like, oh, when I, I had that happen to me a while ago, I couldn't believe it. So it is something that we're not stopping in the same way when it comes to impaired or distracted, but we probably should be. And, and the reason why we know impaired driving is wrong is because your reflexes are slowed considerably. 
Same thing when you're sleepy, right? Absolutely. It's, you know, you're slow, you're not paying as attention, you've got a bit of tunnel vision. You know, that that comment that you made about, oh, I don't even remember the last few kilometers of my drive is so common when it comes to sleepy drivers. Um, not even people realizing how tired they were and then they get home and they have this realization or, or you know, it, it hits them that they, they don't remember the last few kilometers. Think about had something run out in front of your vehicle, whether it's an animal, a person, another car, a cyclist. Think about if you didn't remember even getting to the through the drive, what would have happened in that incidence where you would have had to react to protect the person or, or you know, whatever it is that's got in front of you or yourself? And it's tough to tell people, especially, okay, I'm going to say it, especially men who want to get the trip done with right away and I can do it in one sitting. So yes, I am driving to Timmins and I can do, what's Timmins? Eight, eight hours thereabouts. I can do it in one drive. We just have to stop and get gas somewhere. How do you convince people that this is not okay? So this is a, a real big challenge that we face and we, we have tips that we provide, you know, first of all, you know, you probably shouldn't be driving more than 800 kilometers. And even that's a lot in mm-hmm. one in one day or in one drive. Um, you know, plan for it to take longer. You should be getting out of your vehicle uh, probably every two hours, even more if, if you need to. Um, but every two hours, don't just stop your vehicle somewhere. Get out, walk around, uh, go splash water on your face, mm-hmm. do whatever it is just to keep the the blood flowing because it is very difficult and you shouldn't be sitting there for hours on end. Uh, Just like we say on a plane, right? Get up and walk around every hour. It's the same thing when you're behind the wheel. If you're driving long distances, every couple of hours, get out of that vehicle and take a walk and and get some fresh air and move around your vehicle so that you are refreshing yourself for the next leg of your trip. Okay. Um, I just, I just looked it up because I, we shouldn't be speaking of generalities if I was talking about Timmins. And this is a good example because it's under, I think the 800 kilometers you were talking about, but just, so it's about 600 kilometers away. It's going to take you seven hours to get there. Yeah. And, and ideally, if you're going to do a drive like that, you know, bring someone else along so that they can co-drive, right? Share the driving with somebody, recognize if you're tired and you need to stop. Uh, and you might need to alter your plans. So, so plan for the unexpected, right? Bring some things if you need to, to get over, you know, overnight or, or something so that you can break up that time. I mean, obviously get plenty of nights rest or sleep before you do a drive like that. Um, drive at times when you're normally awake. So, you know, sometimes people are like, I'm just going to drive all night. Well, if you normally sleep all night, yeah, that's not the time because your body recognizes certain patterns. Your body recognizes when you normally go into sleep no m- mode. Uh, you know, we talk about it with weight all the time, right? Your body sort of gets mm-hmm. used to a certain uh, weight. It also gets used to a certain sleep rhythm. If you are actually switching that up and you're not preparing for it or, or doing it properly, it can be dangerous. And actually, police often will tell you that they get calls for people from people saying that they see an impaired driver on the road because someone's, you know, weaving or sort of veering out of their lane. And meanwhile... Uh, so, uh, in a lot of instances, it's it's a drowsy driver, not a drunk driver. And, you know, you can also make it part of your trip. They always say getting there is half the fun. So if you're going, and, and again, we're using the, the example of Timmins, just, you know, it's, it's uh, just pick that out of a hat. But, you know, there's a beautiful waterfall uh, just uh, just in the Bracebridge area. So plan 
to pull over there, bring something to eat, sit by the waterfall, and and just breathe for a little bit. It's not going to make you that much later. Yeah, recognize if you need to take a nap. There are rest stops along the highway for a reason too. Um, you know, sometimes recognizing that uh, we normally think about it in terms of truckers, right? So mm-hmm. commercial transport drivers. Um, you know, they have places where they can actually park their vehicles overnight and sleep. Uh, not, you know, always the ideal or people, you know, are worried about that kind of thing, but they are rest stops for a reason. It's giving you that time. Maybe you need to eat. Maybe you need some coffee. May, you know, maybe you need to make a call and say, I need to change plans. It, there's no shame in recognizing that you're too tired to drive. Um, and we do have to look at this as seriously as we do as other road safety issues and concerns that we we hear about. Um, this is this is a different thing. It's not something you consumed and, and made you do it. It's, mm-hmm. It just happens to be like our lifestyles are busy. We're trying to fit in a lot. Um, but we need to recognize that when we're too tired to drive, we're not a safe driver. Uh, and and um, the, the, uh, the time you spend makes the journey seem a little less stressful too. If you can pull over every once in a while, you're not as tired when, when you get to the end of the journey either. Yeah. I mean, people just think, I just want to get there. Mm-hmm. When I get there, I can sleep all I want or I can rest all I want, right? But, you know, again, if you've driven and you realize you have, you're not really remembering the last few kilometers, uh, if you have, you know, if your thoughts are starting to disconnect and wander, you're having trouble focusing or keeping your eyes open, your, your, you know, your thoughts are heavy, your head is heavy, um, you know, you're, you are sort of veering lanes out of your lane, you're yawning a lot. Um, you know, if you're too close or too far to other vehicles, other cars are honking at you and you're missing some basic signals or even like traffic signals, this is telling you that something's wrong. You're probably too tired to drive and you need to come up with another plan. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the CAA also lobbies government for things that are needed for drivers. So you have to do me a favor. Maybe you're already lobbying for this. I don't know, Teresa. We don't do a good enough job in this province about having rest stops. They're sporadic. They're few and far between. Um, you know, I'll use driving to Sudbury as an example. I think there's, there's, there's like one or two, and that's it the entire way. Down in the States along the interstate, they have all these rest stops. Now, I'm not talking full, you know, McDonald's, Burger King things. I'm talking about a parking lot, maybe some vending machines, a washroom. Doesn't have to be staffed. Just somewhere every hour that, that there is a place for vehicles to pull off. And when you drive the 401 and the four, all the 400 series highways, you can go hours and hours without ever really having a highway rest stop. I do know it was probably about two years ago the province was looking at the rest stops and and what the strategy is for rest stops in the province. Um, You know, are there ways to, uh, you know, adapt and make changes to the ones we have? Um, You know, do we need to look at sort of other stretches of road? And of course, you know, municipalities along some of these routes have lobbied about some of these long stretches of road that need some sort of, uh, you know, changes to them to make them safer. Um, people also don't like to go off the highway. There are exits. Usually those signs along the highway will say, you know, there's a coffee shop, a rest stop, a bathroom or, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, sometimes we may actually have to get off the actual highway and the ramp is just, you know, a block away or wherever, wherever you need to get to is actually a really short distance. Sometimes it can be confusing. I've taken, um, you know, between restaurant stops, gotten off and had this long windy road to get off the highway, then back on the highway. Uh, just to get a, a little break somewhere. 
Um, but I do know that this is something that they were looking at a little while ago. We haven't talked to them most recently, but it's definitely part of our ongoing conversations when we're addressing road safety with them. And it, it is definitely, you know, on that list of all the things that uh, we need to keep taking a look at and keep talking about and make some changes. And and you can look up online on any of the map services you know, little restaurants and places, and you find these little gems because you're forcing yourself to get off the highway. Let me let me share one with you. Huntsville, it's like literally a two-minute drive off the highway. There's, there's this restaurant called Three Sisters. It is so good. And it, it it's quick, and you just get off the highway, and, and you walk around a little bit, and then, then you're easy to get back on, but you've discovered a nice little place. You know, this is that time of year, right? We've got the long weekend coming up, or we're in the long weekend, um, but it's August. People are finally saying, okay, time to take those vacations before, you know, the fall hits. We, we've been cooped up for a long time just due to the pandemic. People are eager to get out and about. But one of the big things that has been talked about over the last two years is, you know, learning about your province, learning about this beautiful province we call Ontario and all the wonderful places that you have to offer. And actually, the government of Ontario is offering um, a rebate that if you collect your receipts from traveling within October, families uh, can, can claim these on their taxes. And there is a it's called a staycation mm -hmm. rebate. Um, and so, you know, explore and take those opportunities to take those rest stops or off the beaten path, path stops, yeah. plan your trip so you can enjoy those. And in fact, you know, you've got some, some coverage in terms of if you do are tired and you want to take that hotel stay so that you can break up a long distance, whether it's to Timmins, especially if it's to Sault Ste. Marie um, or some of these really long drives do that because you know this is the year with these kinds of incentives to help you explore the province but it maybe you know it's about also the new habits we learn to to need to learn in order to all be a little bit safer so much stuff on your website too for uh, for drivers to go check out and helps them plan the trip Yes, you can go to www.casco.com. Um, the road safety stuff is under the advocacy section, but you know we've got trip planners and maps that you can pick up at retail locations, um, uh, where you can get discounts along the way, whether it's hotels or restaurants. So you know, obviously, if you're a CA member, you get to enjoy some of those benefits. Uh, three cents off at Shell, because let's face it, gas is pretty mm. pricey these days. So three cents off at the pump if you're a, a CA member. But there are other, you know, affinity programs. So so think about all those things as you're planning your road trips uh, for the remainder of the summer. If you're if you're partaking in uh, uh, just some summer fun, remember to get a good night's sleep before you drive, or get your naps in before your long drives back. And um, if you are going to be drinking <laughs> the night before, um, we also caution about, you know, getting up too early because you still might not have sober, sobered mm -hmm. up yet. And I, have, I have been with police on a lot of ride spot checks that they've done in the mornings and the number of people who are still impaired and they say, well, I haven't had a drink in hours. You know, I, I was at a bender last night, 11 or 12 midnight, but it's 7 a.m. No, you can still be legally impaired. Absolutely. This is something that uh, we've noticed over the last couple of years, more than that, actually. A lot of ride stops are starting to happen during the day or in the morning uh, after a, a holiday or a Friday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday um, because people are you know, consuming a lot of alcohol and they're thinking if they're out partying. But if you're getting behind the wheel the next day, you know, your body may not be sober. You may think you're sober because it was hours away. Um, but that's not the case. And often you can register on, on the readings of mm -hmm. being prepared. 
And you can still be charged. All right, Teresa DeFilly is always a pleasure. Mine too, Kevin. And enjoy your long weekend and, the, and your August. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.